E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Today, we're going to go outside of planet Earth and talk about stars for a minute. Actually, it has a lot to do with wine because um, a lot of us talk about terroir in our daily lives. And in fact, if you're a winemaker out there listening, I'm sure you've analyzed the soil in your vineyards based on um, you know, what elements are there. Where do elements come from? All the elements in a vineyard that make terroir, that, that make wine what it is today, that give all those uh, flavors to wine, that change the chemistry of the soil, these all come from star explosions. And once you, um, once you dig into this a little bit, it really blows your mind about how much what's going on in the universe and the physics of the universe really affect what's in our glass of wine. So how do stars work? Well, stars have a life and death cycle, just like people. They're born and then they die. And the bigger a star is, uh, stars are composed primarily of hydrogen. That's, it's the first element and there's only one electron around hydrogen. So it's kind of the simplest element that there is. Hydrogen is plentiful in the universe, at least right now, and there's lots of it out there. So essentially when a star ignites, if it has a lot of mass, hydrogen is there filling up the star. There's tons of gravitational pull going on inside of the star, and you get the process of, of uh, fusion. And this is something that we, we've only played with a little bit on Earth. We've only been able to do um, like fusion just a little bit. But fusion happens inside the core of a star, and it creates energy and light, and that gives us uh, what we have today. Now, the bigger a star is, the higher the gravitational energy is on the inside of the star. Big stars die differently than small stars. So if you have a huge star uh, that's really, really big, it's going to die as a supernova because it has the energy to explode like that. If you have a tiny star like our star, our star is going, when our star dies, it will be a red giant. So it will actually expand and eat up everything in the solar system and just become like a huge red giant. And then there are other stars that die and they become white dwarfs, which is actually just like a big cold uh, carbon diamond in the sky. And if you look up in the sky uh, at night, you have to get out of New York City first, but if you look up there, you can see there's different color stars. And red giants look different than white dwarfs, and, and huge superstars uh, look different than all of these. So a giant star, uh, when it dies, it explodes as a supernova. And this process happens very fast. Once the hydrogen gets, gets used up inside of a star, it starts to create heavier elements. So it takes you know billions of years for this to happen. But so you have a big star and the hydrogen is turning, 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 and then suddenly, you know, you get more complex elements. Um, you get 
elements with uh, more electrons essentially floating around the nucleus. And over time, this process gets more and more complex until, until it forms iron. And as soon as uh, one atom of iron is formed, the star will explode as a supernova within seconds. Iron is essentially sort of like kryptonite to a star. So a star is turning, turning, turning. It creates this, this atom of iron. And then, boom, you have this huge process where, where heavier and heavier elements are being created. In fact, in the last microseconds before a supernova happens, that's when gold and silver and platinum, uh, that's when all the really, really heavy uh, elements are created. And that's why there's so few of them on Earth, and that's why they're so rare and coveted. But in those last seconds, that's when those heavier metals are created, and then, bam, the supernova explodes, and I don't even think that any of us have the brain capacity to imagine how big this explosion really is. So when a supernova explodes, it leaves behind a bunch of dust and elements. This is one of the most fascinating things to me, is that a supernova explosion is really the only way that we know of to create matter in the universe. People on Earth, we've messed around with particle accelerators and we've created really tiny, uh, really tiny pieces of matter from energy just for a brief moment. And of course, we've been successful at creating energy from matter. That's what a nuclear explosion is. But we haven't quite figured out how to do it the other way around uh, to a, to a fine-tuned degree where we can essentially create matter from energy. The only way that, that we've seen that being demonstrated in the universe is through a supernova explosion. So the supernova explodes and it leaves behind this crazy, swirling, uh, massive dust and, and uh, particles in, the, in its wake. And all of these, this dust and particles, they actually start clumping together and accreting. And it's funny, they figured out that this happens in space um, because you think in space things just kind of float around and might float away from each other. And yes, this happens to some extent. But on a space shuttle, on a mission um, a couple decades ago, uh, some guy had some salt in a packet and he noticed that in zero gravity, the salt particles, they actually would clump together, even though they were in zero gravity. Well, this happens to a larger extent when solar systems are created, planets are created. So these particles bump into each other, they bump into each other, they accrete, they get bigger, then they start bumping into each other, and then soon they get so big that they have their own gravitational pull. Um, and then you'll get these things called nebulae or nebuluses, and inside of a nebulous, that's actually a star nursery, and stars will ignite from inside of a nebulous. Now, these stars that come from the nebulous, from the nebulae, they're actually smaller stars than supernovas. They are, they're probably not going to go supernova. They're just going to be baby stars like our star. And what that means is that our sun is a baby star that was originally from a supernova billions and billions of years ago, and possibly two supernovas. Our star ignites out of this nebulae, Particles accrete all around the star and create all our planets that we know of, including planet Earth. And what does Earth accrete? Well, Earth accretes some uh, really interesting things. In fact, on Earth's crust, we have about 46% of oxygen, 27% silicone, 8% aluminum, 5% iron, 4% calcium, 3% sodium, 2.5% potassium, 2% magnesium, and those are the most higher percentages of elements that we have on the Earth's crust. And think about that. Oxygen, aluminum, iron, calcium, sodium, potassium, magnesium, all of these things are things that people look for when they analyze soil and when we talk about terroir's influence on wine. In fact, the greatest terroirs in the world are full of special concentrations of these elements. For instance, calcium. 
calcium is a, a major component of limestone soils. So all the burgundy wines that you love, all the Chablis that you love, that's all from from calcium. So thank you, uh, Supernova, for creating calcium and creating it on planet Earth. Also, iron. Iron-rich terrorosa soils create some of the most interesting tasting wines around the world. Cunoir is just one example of that. Bordeaux's great crews have high potassium and low magnesium and nitrogen. And high potassium and low magnesium and nitrogen combine to create these really interesting wines um, in Bordeaux. And calcium and magnesium help facilitate water flow through soil. So it's really interesting how a supernova can literally create the elements that make vineyard terroir what it is and that make it so interesting for us as sommeliers and winemakers. We also have um, a lot of hydrogen on Earth, and a lot of this has bonded with oxygen to form water on our crust. And interestingly enough, Earth is 0.02% water. Seems like a little bit compared to how much water is, is on Earth, but the truth is, is that all of the water is on the Earth's surface. And we're lucky to have this amount of water because if we had more water, we wouldn't have land and we'd be a water world. And if we had less water, we might not have any life on Earth. And we're also lucky that the Earth is uh, where it is in the solar system. Because if it was a little closer to the sun, our atmosphere could have burned off. If it was farther away, we would be a gas giant. The planet would have formed differently. And we're also lucky that Earth has magnetic poles because only planets with magnetic poles can have atmospheres. And actually, there's moons out there in our own solar system that have atmospheres and magnetic poles. So it's pretty interesting, um, even the diversity in our own solar system that you can find. But the magnetic poles literally create a protective bubble around the Earth, and they allow our atmosphere, they allow all that oxygen to literally be sucked to the surface of the Earth and to remain there and to breathe in and out with all the plants and life on Earth, including grapevines and us. And without the magnetic poles, our atmosphere would just burn off within days. We're lucky to be exactly where we are in the solar system, not only for our own lives, but for to have such interesting wines and interesting grapevines and interesting soils and interesting terroirs where all these vines can be planted. It's really interesting to know when you look up at the sky that it's not just this, this distant, faraway world where there's just a bunch of stars up there, but that actually those stars are a dynamic part of our universe and those stars create everything that we look for in wine in our daily lives. And that is why we have such great wine in our glasses every day. I talk to winemakers all the time, and something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial, and that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash 
I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Alan Meadows of the Berghound on the show today. Hello, sir. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. You're originally in the finance world. Yeah, I started as a banker and then ultimately uh, went to be a chief financial officer of a big insurance company, New York Stock Exchange, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I finally got to the point where I couldn't stand prosperity anymore and wanted to do something different. And I'd had this idea of possibly starting a newsletter, but a newsletter devoted to only one thing. And I wrote a bunch of my friends with my ideas saying, hey, do you think a, a, a newsletter that tries to go into a lot of depth, but in only one region, and Burgundy at that, would work? And everybody said, it's a brilliant idea, but you're going to starve. It'll never work. Because at that time, in fact, it's hard to believe that only 13 years ago, there were no specialized wine publications. And moreover, it was going to be primarily online rather than printed because the only way at the time I thought to make a specialized wine publication work was to make it electronic. And you also had this interesting confluence of a variety of factors that I thought would make it work. The first thing was, um, again, it's hard to believe only 13 years ago that that was really the beginning of where people were starting to search for the majority of their information electronically online you know the net exploded second thing was the development of securitized payment systems where for a long time people were very very reticent about putting their credit card information online but as encryption began to work um, people became more confident, and so I thought that, all right, people could pay for this electronically. And the third thing was the development of reasonably sophisticated desktop publishing um, software, which would enable me to create something that was visually appealing. It's still dull, but at least it is efficient in terms of the layout of information. And so those three things and the ability of the net to make your presence known, I mean, no matter where somebody lives in the world, they can find you. The last thing was if you delivered it electronically, not only was the cost zero, which is pretty low, uh, somebody who lives next door to you um, can't get it any faster than the guy living in South Africa. And so that was the notion, because whenever you have a business idea, the idea has to be able to have some economic validity, but at the same time, you've got to have the logistical support to see your vision um, actually be created. And that makes a lot of sense on the logistical side, but at the same time, there was almost kind of a, a vacuum in terms of authoritative Burgundy reviews on that region in particular from the more general interest publications. And there's no doubt. I mean, like anything else, if you're going to go deep, you can't go wide. And you know, most of the, the publications at that time that were trying to appeal to people that were interested in wine, um, they just couldn't spend three, four, five months the way I do. Uh, in one region. Uh, I think the second thing is that in spite of the fact that the the journalists the, and the wine critics that were doing Burgundy at that time were certainly credible, um, most of them, with the exception of Clive Coates, were only visiting the top 
30 in red and maybe the top 20 in white. So there was no depth. And the whole vision behind Birdhound was that I, as a consumer at that time, being a bird geek, and that's about all I collected, I wasn't getting what I wanted. And hence the idea said, well, maybe there is a space in an otherwise already crowded um, area. Is there a niche for something that is specialized and relatively profound in terms of the number of growers? Because an awful lot of growers in, in Burgundy uh, have one or two wines that are typically very, very good for whatever reason. They're in the best uh, parcels of that particular appellation. They have very old vines. Whatever it is, they've got something that's terrific. Doesn't mean their entire range is terrific. And um, people are always looking for that which is exceptionally well done. Um, if you go to the Domaine Laurent Conti or Rousseau or Rumier, typically most of the range is excellent. Um, but that was already being done. And because those names, Burgundy in, in particular, uh, you the mantra has always been producer, producer, producer. And so if you're interested in one of those producers, nothing is a bargain. I mean, I'm not saying you're overpaying, but it's not a bargain. And so the idea was to try and uncover uh, the producers and those one, two or three wines that were excellent to try and give um, those people who were interested a way to acquire things that didn't cost an arm and a leg and also weren't exactly mainstream. So it was 2000 that you had the idea. And when was the first release? First release, I went as a professional for the first time. Even I've been to Burgundy many, many, many times over the years. My first visit was 1979, kind of dating myself here. Uh, but after that, the first visit was in the fall of 2000. And the first release was January 2001. And since we just released yesterday, issue 52, and since it's quarterly, you know, 52 divided by four, 13 years, here we are. So you were reviewing the 99s when you got started? The 99s in barrel, uh, with very few exceptions, and the 1998s in, in bottle. Are there conversations over a time that you maybe didn't hear then that you hear more often now amongst growers or visitors to Burgundy? In what sense? Are there topics that have come up more and more over the years, whether it be you know global warming or some of the vine diseases that are occurring or premox? What's what what conversations have changed when you've been on the ground? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That that alone could uh, could occupy us for thirty minutes. Uh, but I, I think that the which I, I think epitomizes the revolution that had occurred in Burgundy. I mean, when you have an area that is tra as traditional as Burgundy is, been around for a couple of thousand years, to, to say that a revolution occurs, that's a dramatic term. But I really do think that the beginning, the, the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, where uh, the young generation that was coming up had, for the first time, their parents had enough money to send them to do what the French call a stage, which is what we would call an internship. And so people were going outside of France. They were going to California. They were going to Oregon. They were going to, to New Zealand and Australia. And they were seeing a scale of winemaking that they hadn't seen, but also a, a vision of, of wine cleanliness, of different equipment, and seeing the wine world in a different way. And when they came home, uh, they began to say, we need to upgrade our facilities. Also, um, for the first time, you had a generation that was, technically speaking, well-schooled. 
Um, I have to tell you that when I first started going to Burgundy, um, I'm almost painfully inquisitive. I ask questions to the point of where you see people's eyes cross and then you realize, okay, well, perhaps that's enough for today. But in all seriousness, I would ask, you know, why do you do this? Because I really wanted to understand the process. Uh, we've all heard a gazillion times the Burgundian method. As an aside, I'm here to tell you after 34 years of going there now, I have no idea what the Burgundian method is because there is no recipe book, which is part of the charm, but it's also part of the problem. And so for the first time, you had a generation who had been sent uh, elsewhere to at least be exposed to different ideas, but also at the Save École in Bonn, uh, all of a sudden um, the enrollment there went up. And so the winemakers in Burgundy for the first time ever were well-trained technically. But the big revolution happened when, I mean, this, like I said, you could go on for a long, long time here, but the automation came to Burgundy relatively late, 1950s, and chemical farming came in. You know, the, basically the, the fertilizer and the chemical salesman came in and said, you know, better, better living through chemistry. And uh, so people didn't have to go out there as often because they were chemically spraying herbicides, pesticides uh, to keep the, because they weren't also plowing the ground nearly as often as we do today. Um, the chemical fertilizers enabled it with just a little bit of rain to, to seep in. They didn't have to plow. And so the vineyards in between the, the vine rows became like concrete. Um, there's a very, very famous saying by a soil scientist in, that is aptly named Claude Bourguignon uh, that said at, in the 1970s, the soils in Burgundy were the equivalent of a biological desert, thanks to all of these pesticides, herbicides, and, and fertilizers. And that was the revolution, because people started to say, this young generation were saying to themselves, we can't do what grandpa and, uh, and my father did. Uh, we have to change. And so almost ironically, given Burgundy's reputation, age-old reputation for being the land of terroir, Burgundy literally went back to its roots, meaning that all of a sudden they said, we're the land of terroir. Our wines, in theory, are simply a messenger. But the message is in the ground. But if we are farming this way, how can the message be be seen? How can it be transparent? And so things little by little by little begin to change. Um, you had a few pioneers like La Lubise Lois. She wasn't the first, but she was probably the most visible to adopt biodynamic farming, you know, which was a revolution in Burgundy. And even though a lot of people couldn't withstand the economic risk of farming that way, uh, she could, but they began to say, well, maybe less chemical farming uh, and we'll plow to turn weeds under. And so viticulture in general became much more respectful of the land and the terroir. People became concerned, are we polluting our drinking waters? Are the aquifers? You know, there was this almost a, a linearity of concerns that one thing led to another and are we polluting this and is this the best way the other thing that was coincident with that because it wasn't simply the burgundians saying to themselves we need to change there was indeed that but also wine quality worldwide 
was starting to rise, exploding even. And so good wine was available everywhere. And the Burgundians also realized that economically speaking, they were going to have to up their game as well. This wasn't going to be uh, a situation going forward where a great name alone was going to be sufficient um, to sell wines, especially when you look uh, at Burgundy and consider how uneconomic. Um, Burgundy is the land of the lack of economies of scale. They don't exist. The parcels are too small. Uh, the, the labor in France is too expensive. And farming one grape in each color, uh, you can't blend away your mistakes the way they do in Bordeaux. You know, in Bordeaux, if it rains early, you, you use less Merlot. If it rains late, you use less Cabernet. Uh, you can play to an extent. In other words, your, your margin for error is larger. Um, in the land of what the French call a monocépage, meaning one grape variety for each color, essentially, I mean, there's a bit of Aligoté, there's a bit of Gamay, but really it's Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And when you are making wine that way, um, you know, viticulturally speaking, again, you have less room for error. And then given the already a small region, if we just take the Côte d'Or, for example, it's one third the size of Napa Valley. You know, Napa Valley has vines planted on both hillsides and the bench in between. You know, the Côte d'Or is, is a short hillside on one side only. Then you take the Napoleonic Code that came in in 1806 and took a very small area and made it um, the mosaic that it is today. And after three generations, you had people trying to farm very, very small parcels. And that makes, uh, just to give you a good example, uh, there's a guy in Vaughan that is well known and he has a full hectare of uh, von beaumont now a hectare by the standards of burgundy is a very very big piece of land until you realize he has 10 parcels making up that hectare and not all of them are contiguous in fact most of them are not and so if you have to take your tractor across somebody else's land or around get up to the top of the hill and come down it's just not an efficient way to to farm uh, the second thing is that one of the inconsistencies in Burgundy is contributed not only because you're using only one grape variety, which again, um, viticulturally to get uh, phenolically ripe fruit um, each and every year, that's its own challenge. Second thing is vinifying exceptionally small quantities of anything, in particular Pinot Noir though, is very, very tough. And the reason that vinifying small quantities of red wine. White wine, you have more margin for error because you're not using, typically at least, you are not using uh, the skins to ferment on. Usually you press and you go direct to barrel and there's not much to screw up with white wine. Uh, with red wine, because you have to ferment on the, the pulp and the, the skins and the stems if you elect to use them, uh, that's a whole different issue. And again, the reason that it is very, very difficult to consistently make um, excellent red wine out of these small parcels uh, or small quantities of grapes is heat management. You need heat for extraction of color, of tannins, of what we call dry extract, um, that sensation in the mouth that makes you uh, feel the difference between, say, skim milk and whole milk. Uh, if you've got overcropped Pinot Noir, you've got the equivalent, texturally speaking, of skim milk. On the other hand, if you've got lower yields and you manage the extraction correctly, then you have whole milk. Um, but again, 
you put all of those aspects together and consistently making great wine in Burgundy is a, is its own challenge. And then couple in um, this notion, well, not a notion, but the fact that uh, Burgundy is the most northerly wine region in the world for red wine. Um, obviously, Champagne, Alsace, Germany, Austria, you make excellent white wine. But red wine, Burgundy, is about as far north as you can go and consistently make it. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that of all the world's wine regions, the um, Burgundy has probably benefited most from global warming. Now, whether that will continue to be the case is another issue. In fact, if, if you look at a lot of the, the plant science that has gone on for the last 50 years, the, the emphasis has been um, disease resistance and ripening sooner. Um, the reason that ripening sooner was an issue is that most uh, wine amateurs, most wine enthusiasts have the notion that the life of a wine begins on the day of the harvest. But in fact, there's nine months of viticulture that has preceded that point. And when you have your entire annual income sitting out in a field, um, most of what can happen is bad, uh, meaning rot, hail, rain, predation, whatever it might be, your yields are declining all the time. And so the idea is that the longer your crop's out there, the more economic risk that you are taking. And if you can get it in the couvery, meaning in the winery sooner, you have lower risk. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that agriculturally speaking, time is a form of risk. And while viticulture uh, may be sophisticated agriculture, it is still agriculture until those grapes are picked. And so all this research has been done. How do we accelerate the ripening process because we reduce economic risk in doing so. And now in terms of one of those discussion points that you asked about is have we done the right wrong thing? Uh, really have we put ourselves in a position where if global warming continues, might we one day be harvesting in July? A couple of data points between those uh, listeners that are bird geeks may remember that 2003 was an exceptionally hot year. Uh, and there used to be a concept in Burgundy that has been um, present since the 1100s. It's called the Bande de Vendange. Bande de Vendange is simply an officially mandated harvesting date. You couldn't pick before that. And because the Dukes of Burgundy derived a great deal of their wealth, from the wine that was produced there, as well as political prestige, because it was so famous, um, it was. I think it's interesting to consider historically that already by the 12th century they were trying to control quality, saying you couldn't pick unripe grapes because it was already understood that unripe fruit didn't make interesting wine. And so, in 2003, for the first time since 1893, 110 years earlier. The Bande de Vendange was declared in August. And when you think about that, that not one time in the entire 20th century was the Bande de Vendange declared in August. And then it was declared again in 2007. Uh, the Bande de Vendange, just technically speaking here, was done away with in 2007. But in 2011, had there been 
a bon de vendange. Uh, it would have been declared in August again. So you had it declared one time in the space of 110 years and three times in the space of eight. Statistically speaking, that is highly unlikely, if not impossible. Uh, global warming has definitely had an impact. Um, that was a long segue, but a couple of other things that are very much on the Burgundians' minds, clearly Primox, some are in denial, but most understand that they have a problem. Um, and there is a great deal of research that has been done to try and uncover the causes of it. I think the problem is better today, mainly because people have become incredibly meticulous uh, about what they're doing, measuring dissolved oxygen levels, measuring SO2 levels, uh, doing a variety of things to try and make sure that what can be controlled is. But the sad fact is that nobody really knows yet. And people ask me all the time, have they solved the problem? Have they solved the problem, etc. And I always go, until they can definitively establish what caused the problem, then no, you can't declare victory. You can say it's better. We might be winning the war, but right now it's, uh, it remains a vexing problem. The, probably the last major issue that people discuss are the rise of, in particular, ESCA. Uh, ESCA is a type of, of infection uh, that can weaken a vine and ultimately kill it, um, sometimes within two or three weeks. Uh, in other words, the, the process itself doesn't happen that quickly, but by the time the signs are seen, it's too late. In other words, at that point, uh, the, the patient is terminal. Um, otherwise, I can't think of too many more things that would be front and center other than among the group that is farming organically and has had good results, a lot of them are thinking, well, do I take the next step and go um, to full-on biodynamic farming? There are a lot of domains that are becoming certified these days. Others uh, practice it but don't want to be certified because, as one grower told me, I'm all for organic, even biodynamic approach, but I'm not prepared to lose my crop. And so if I need to go out and spray a synthetic application, then I'm prepared to do that because I'm not going to lose my crop. Um, I even had one, uh, it was almost poignant, uh, one woman winemaker that said, I would love to emulate the farming practices of Lalu, but I have a mortgage to pay. I don't have the right to lose my crop. So I do what I can to farm respectfully. But again, I'm not prepared to lose my crop. Have we seen a resistance to natural wine and what might be called natural wine in the Burgundy region as opposed to a place like Loire where it seems like it's quite common? In Burgundy, I see Pacolet, Pierrot, which is associated with Pacolet, and not a whole lot else of people working in that idiom is is that going to change has that changed am i not aware of something or is the resistance um you know really boiling down to paying the mortgage or uh aesthetic reasons that's a fair question there there isn't much of it i get the sense that because burgundy at least uh, the the domains that i visit which are the best of burgundy um still more than 300 of them and that's only the top 10%, but nonetheless, it is a group of growers that tend to make wine, not exclusively, but I would say 90% plus, which is still a very high proportion, 
are making what the French call vin de garde, meaning that the wines are expressly intended to age. And thus far, this may change, but thus far, the natural wine movement hasn't had a lot of luck uh, in bottling things that are, one, stable, and two, um, can endure. And enduring is necessary for transformation. Um, but what we're really after in terms of aging wine is transformation. Um, something that tastes more or less the same 20 years after it was bottled, you have to ask yourself, well, what's the point of having kept it for 20 years? Enduring is not the goal. Transformation is the goal. Because I think that at least among the cognoscenti, there is uniformity of opinion around the fact that the best wines transform over time, which is why we bother to age them. And there are some people in Chablis that have gone natural, but even there, it's quasi-natural, meaning that they're using what is, in their view, the minimum sulfur possible, but it's certainly not zero. You mentioned to me recently that um, you felt more and more growers were using stems uh, when they make their Pinot Noir. Is that a part of attempting for a vinegard is that a mouthfeel issue in the wake of global warming uh what why might it be that more people are using more stems as you've already seen there's probably no short answers to the questions you're asking but i think that there are a couple of aspects that have come together at the same time to create this interest one historically speaking much of Let's we'll take the 19th century, where um, Burgundy was al already um, world famous for centuries before that, but it was the invention of a container uh, that could keep wine beyond the next vintage. Uh, and so vinification changed right at the dawn of the 19th century. Um, so 200 years ago, but nonetheless, as vinification started to change, uh, they hadn't typically used or tried to destem, and there were very crude destemmers available then. And in fact, I'm reading a book uh, on Clovergeau right now, and in the time of uh, a guy who owned all of it, all 51 hectares, and uh, they talk about uh, destemming or partial destemming, but they also complain about the fact that this thing just shreds the fruit. And you all often had as many pieces of stem as opposed to the entire stem in it such that were you really destemming. So it wasn't until really around the 40s where reasonably good destemmers became available in Burgundy. One of the pioneers in a variety of specs uh, that began to make a different style of wine was Henri Jaillet. You know, world famous, uh, considered by many to have been the, the best winemaker that Burgundy ever produced. I'd put him in second place, but that's a separate issue. Um, in any event, he had, because his first vintage that he bottled under his own label uh, was 1976, and already by 78, he was celebrated. And you remember what I said earlier about this generation of Burgundy uh, that was being sent around the world and was very impressionable, as the young typically are, um, all of a sudden, Henri Jaillet became a cult hero. You know, I want to make wines like Henri does. And so he had an incredible amount of influence. And his mantra uh, was, no stems, no stems, no stems. 
And he passed away in 2006. And his influence, and when you're not around anymore, it's uh, more difficult to have influence, uh, began to wane. And other models of greatness began to um, take his place. Domaine de Romani-Conti, Christophe Rumier, uh, Lalubis Loa. Um, there are certainly others uh, who use plenty of stems. And I think that there began to be an appreciation for wines that could last a long, long time. Um, not necessarily that couldn't be approached in their youth, but could go the distance, could have this transformation, could have these wonderful aromatics that wines made with stems usually have, this floral and spice quantity quality that often goes to dried rose petal with extended bottle age. That began to intrigue an awful lot of people because also, um, to be fair, while Burgundy is the, the land of terroir and the winemaker's duty is in fact to express that underlying terroir, the Burgundians don't like to think of terroir as a straitjacket. You know, in other words, my personal, what the, the French call pat de vigneron, which is the winemaker's signature. You know, it's my own personal contribution to the personality of this wine. And while most bird geeks will tell you that less is more, these different styles exist for a reason. And we typically buy wines because not only do we like the inherent quality of the wine, but we like the style in which it's rendered. Most people tend to confuse style with quality. And in the pages of Berghound, I try and be a stylistic agnostic, meaning that I view my job as a critic to judge the quality of a wine as objectively as I am able and then describe the style in which it's rendered. I mean, you might like lean and austere, you might like lush, opulent, and lavish, um, but those aren't, uh, that's not wine quality. Um, it is stylistic. But at the same time, not to talk out of both sides of my mouth at the same time, that's with the, the Berghound hat on. The Allen Meadows hat, now I put in my cellar that which I like, which not only, again, is good quality, but style that I like. And so that's why I say that uh, this pat de vigneron, this stylistic imprint um, that is personal, is not irrelevant in the conversation about what we buy and what we like. And that also, I think, started to change because so many people were rendering wines that were, if not suave, then sort of round and a bit fruit forward. And people started to say, you know, this is a touch banal. Is this really what we should be doing? And that's when I think that this today, uh, this heightened interest in the wines or using, producing wines made with stems. Um, but technically speaking, it is much more challenging. Um, stems tend to be a magnet for a vine disease called botrytis. Um, and botrytis can make some, we can call them interesting, but I'd rather just call them funky aromas. Uh, you can literally ruin your wine. And so you have to be very, very careful. Um, it's interesting about the, the sorting aspect. Typically, when you sort, you sort what is called negatively, meaning you are throwing away uh, those things that you think are substandard, are not going to contribute to, uh, to the wine. As people often say, if you wouldn't eat it, throw it out. 
uh, that's that's sort of the, the basic criterion of uh, how people sort. But when it comes to whole bunches, it's generally what is called a positive sorting. I'm selecting those bunches where I believe not only is the fruit perfect, but the stems uh, are reasonably dignified, meaning that there is some ripeness, uh, so that you don't get because the risk is that you get vegetal wines, um, that you get excessively uh, floral, but floral with that vegetal character. There's some people that like that, but most people don't like it when it's aggressive. It's a bit like uh, I knew Henri Jaillet reasonably well, and for whatever reason, he tolerated me. He didn't have much interest in journalists, but I think because I asked so many questions, he decided, well, at least he's trying to understand. And I asked him the question, I said, Monsieur Jaillet, uh, you are arguably the world's most celebrated winemaker. And at this point, at 80 years of age, you've done most everything there is to do in the wine world. But is there anything that you have never done in your storied career that you would like to have done? And he was always calling me jeune homme, young man. And he would say, jeune homme, I would like to have made one vintage of Romane Conti. And so I said, let me guess, without stems, and he said, yep, without stems. So I asked him, I said, why are you so rabidly anti-whole cluster? Um, and he said, jeune homme, have you ever tasted a stem that you, you thought tasted good? And I thought about that for a moment. And I said, no, that's true, Monsieur Jaillet. I've never tasted a stem that I found particularly appealing. I said, but let me ask you a question, if I may. Do you eat salt? And he said, sure I do. I said, but you don't eat salt by itself. And he instantly understood the import of what I was saying. He said, ah, tu ne sais rien, which is, you know nothing. Uh, but my point was that most every chef uses a bit of salt um, to brighten flavors. And the corollary import with respect to how that might be interesting in winemaking is it doesn't have to be 100% one or the other. And some of the experimentation that is being done is to use a portion. I mean, even the Domaine de Romani Conti, which for years and years and years was the sole outpost of 100% every year, always, all days, no exception. Now they have modified that because they have looked at a, a couple of of their vintages like 92, 94, 97, of which the wines are perfectly good, but they are not at the level, even in the context of those challenged, relatively challenged vintages. Um, I think at that point they realized, okay, perhaps we can modify the proportion such that we remain true to our stylistic roots, but we don't create wines that are at the margin, excessively vegetal. And so, uh, you are seeing people use 20%, 25%, 50%. I mean, a few still, I mean, Domaine de Romney Conti was not the only holdout. I mean, I could cite you a couple of domains that don't even own a destemmer. Um, now, I've never quite figured out how they manage year in and year out because I don't care how good your viticulture is and how conscientious you are, you cannot prevent botrytis every year. It's just not possible, uh, at least with the, the current state of the art of the treatments that we have, can't do it. And so how they avoid having these funky aromas is, is an interesting question. But in any event, it is a movement that will, is in 
full stream at the moment, but we'll probably modulate because one of the the things, as I mentioned, not only do you have these viticultural issues of producing clean fruit with clean stems, also ripe, um, you have to typically leave that fruit out in the out in the vineyards longer. Again, you know, time is a, the agricultural equivalent of risk, so that's a concern. You have the cleanliness concern, and then vinifying with stems is quite different. Um, usually, wines made with stems have lighter colors. The reason is is that the anthocyanins are being absorbed by the stems. They typically are lower alcohol. If you are not chaptalizing, meaning you're not adding sugar to boost the alcohol level, because again, stems absorb um, alcohol. Third thing is, is that they tend to be reservoirs of potassium and potassium is interesting in the sense that if it's released into your fermenting must, your acidities are lower. Third thing is, or fourth thing, pardon me, is that the colors also tend to be lighter because you have this mass that is, uh, this fermenting mass that is much less compact. And therefore, the heat characteristics of the fermentation are not at all the same as when you have this very compact cake uh, that is that has no stems in it. To combat that, you sometimes will have people who will ferment with roughly 10% of the stems. But 10%, usually speaking, especially if the stems are reasonably ripe, is too low to really produce the aromatic and textural effects that I referenced. There, it is more that those stems are a buffer because they tend to be spongy. They're a buffer against excess compaction of your fermenting mass. It's a little easier to do your pigeage, meaning your punching down. And, um, but there that is more uh, a vinification tool than it is, like I said, to go after these, um, these wine specific aspects, um, you know, both textural and aromatic. Have the economic stakes changed in being a celebrated winemaker? both in what that can mean financially for the grower, what that means for the audience that can purchase the wines, but also the buy-in, as you kind of already implied, about what it means to maintain that level of quality? Oh, there's no question. Um, there are some people who are content with making competent wine. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting aspects, this is, this is uh, cultural, but it is almost a global phenomenon these days that being celebrated at something, whatever that something is, is very difficult for most people. The siren call of that is difficult for most people to resist. And we have celebrated chefs, we have celebrated designers, we have celebrated movie makers, you know, everything is celebrated. And it is not lost on uh, the young that there are certain vignerons, meaning winemakers, that are more celebrated than others. Um, this is partially because they tend to be well endowed with terrific terroirs. And as anyone will tell you, that if you really want to judge how serious somebody is, go drink their Bourgogne. It is relatively easier to produce a great wine from a Grand Cru than it is from a Bourgogne. But if you go and taste a Bourgogne that is, that is knockout, chances are everything above that is going to be better still. But there are, I think, young winemakers who are searching for the magic bullet. And 
a, a lot of people have come to Burgundy with the idea that I'm going to purchase some Bourgogne and through sheer dint of perfect viticulture and very low yields, I'm going to create a Bourgogne that can rival somebody else's Grand Cru. Well, that's an interesting idea. It's yet to be done. Uh, doesn't mean that people shouldn't try, but the primacy of terroir, um, you know, when you, you think about Burgundy's history, I'm often asked, what is it that Burgundy has that the new world does not have? Uh, one is the terroir, but this isn't to say that the new world won't find its Latashas, um, its Musignes. What it has though, that the new world does not have is multiple generations of winemakers, as well as multiple generations of consumers that over the years have ultimately determined that that piece of dirt works very, very well. And it works very, very well most of the time. Whereas that piece of dirt over there, once in a great while, it produces something. I, I find it instructive to look at the very first map of Gevrey Chambertin, which was published in 1807. And then in 2009, there was a discovery on the outskirts of Burgundy. For those that may have been to Gevrey and know where the train station is, this was right next door. And they were clearing some land to build some houses and they discovered some artifacts. And in France, whenever um, artifacts are discovered, all progress in terms of the building or whatever it was they were doing to excavate the land stops. And so they had archaeologists come in to, to take a look. And what they discovered were the remains of a very large house um, with associated vineyards. And in mapping out the vineyards, um, they discovered that they were within a centimeter of the same dimensions and planning directions of what was used in Italy. And so this served as further confirmation that the viticultural know-how came from Italy and the house probably was a Roman magnate uh, that was ruling um, that area. That was his area of responsibility. Well, the point is that not there, there was a vineyard there, but that the first, and this was, by the way, dated to uh, around 100 AD. So this advanced by around 200 years. Um, the, in other words, there was a date certain that viticultural activity was occurring in Burgundy um, as of around 100 AD. And the prior time frame was somewhere in the fourth century. So now we've taken it back to the second century with certitude. The reason that I mentioned the first map of Gevray, which in 1807 mapped everything that was being farmed at the time, this vineyard uh, that had been discovered was no longer on that map. Now, this says that sometime between 100 AD and 1800, uh, people said that land is better used for something else, you know, be it wheat, be it, it fruit trees, but that it wasn't sufficiently interesting, um, probably because of frost. Uh, one of the things embedded in the Burgundian hierarchy um, in its rating classification is consistency. Uh, there are vineyards that we sometimes discuss as producing great wine, but they don't produce great wine very often. And so going back to what the Burgundians 
have that the new world does not have is this sifting process where they put all the vineyards in a sieve and slowly shook it and whatever didn't pass through they've kept and so the new world is essentially replicating that today one of the things that the Burgundians also had was the bulk of the vineyards belonged to the ecclesiastical um, group and they didn't have to earn a living their living was not that wine didn't contribute uh, to the economic returns that they enjoyed, but that they had other sources of income. And so their mistakes could be used in their rituals. Uh, they could buy, sell, trade for more interesting things. So again, um, you had, and they were the educated class at the time, and their note-taking, their record-taking was absolutely meticulous. And they were also producing the then state-of-the-art with viticulture and winemaking. I mean, the Clos-Vougeot... Uh, that they built in, uh, it was a chateau that they built uh, right next to the vineyard of Clos It's actually within the walls, was the state of the art at the time. And it was this process of always refining that which was known, um, technically speaking, but also how to farm and where to farm. And the great thing about Burgundy is that it gave the model of this form of discovery to the new world. And so the new world is um, applying this methodology to vineyards today, but they are facing the same challenges that the Burgundians did um, low those centuries ago, because you look at a piece of dirt that maybe has trees planted on it or is farmland, uh, has grass, whatever it might be. You look at that dirt, you do your soil assays, and you finally say, okay, uh, I'm willing to, uh, to make a bet. But it really is a bet. When I talk to New Year Old winemakers, I often leave them massively depressed, not because I intend to, to be a wet blanket, but I point out the realities of the situation, that if you're really looking for the next Latash, then you have to prospect for your land. You have to cut a deal to buy it. Um, you then have to spend the, the current prices that I'm given is roughly $50,000 an acre uh, to, um, to grade it and however you are, you know, hillside, whatever it might be, um, to trellis it, to buy the plant material, to install irrigation if it needs irrigation. You know, whatever your farming approach is going to be, it takes about 50000 an acre plus whatever it costs you to acquire that acreage to begin with. Then it, you get no crop for three years. Um, then you start producing wine. Maybe it's interesting, maybe it isn't. But if you believe the way the Burgundians believe that vines are not mature, in other words, they're not giving you their best fruit until they are somewhere between 35 and 40 years of age. And then if you go back to what I was saying earlier, that a genuinely great wine is one that transforms. Most wines, not all wines, but most red wines take a minimum of 10 years to really express um, the potential. So that 10 to 15 years. So if we add up the time frame we're talking about, um, you basically have 40 years from the time that you are obtaining, in theory at least, your best fruit, uh, and another 10 to 15 years um, before you see whether or not that fruit uh, 
actually gave you a great wine. And now you're 55 years into this before you really begin to understand whether the bet that you placed in acquiring this untested piece of dirt, perhaps the next Latash, is Latash or not, or might even be that vineyard in Gevray that might be interesting for blending fruit, but not much else. That's a hell of a risk, um, economically speaking. Uh, not only that, it's a psychological risk because you're just not going to know. And it's more probable that um, the second or third generation is the one that is going to ultimately know. Because let's say that the plant material that you elected to use wasn't the best. You can't, you couldn't optimize. One of the things that the Burgundians did, because they didn't know any better, there was no other method, it turned out to be the best method, but it's not because they, they knew it was the best method, it just turned out to be. But you had uh, a system back then where you had to propagate more fruit. Well, it was logical that they propagated the vines that were the best. Well, those vines were the best because, not because of anything that they had done in particular, but they self-adapted to that particular piece of terrain in a way that allowed them, for whatever reason, um, to be the best there. And so those were the vines that were propagated. And so what was being propagated in Gevray wasn't the same that was being propagated in Vaughan. And even within uh, Gevray and Vaughan, um, what was being propagated on the hillsides were less well adapted to what was down on the plains um, because of water, because of sunshine, water retention, all manner of these microclimactic influences that caused one vine to flourish uh, above at altitude and another where it was lower. And so back to our new world example, when replanting has to occur, what does replanting occur with? You know, what clone, what rootstock? And so, again, it is all this refinement. I mean, I believe in my heart that the new world will find its Latashas. But this is probably a flowering, in a way of speaking, that 50 years from now, we'll start to have something interesting. But it's more likely to be 200 years from now when our vineyards... Um, are at the same level as the Burgundians. I know that it, it's almost un-American to, to say something like that. I mean, you know, we're, because m there are strong economic interests in saying, we have arrived, you know, dear consumer, no worries, we're already producing wonderful wines. It's not that the wines don't taste good. I'm talking about um, the vineyards. And that process, um, because you were relying on something that is extremely slow to arrive because you can have all of the technical expertise that exists in the world. In other words, you can be as good as, as there is. Um, you can bring all the money in the world to bear, to have the best equipment, um, to farm so that your fruit is always concentrated. Um, you can have all the enthusiasm in the world. Uh, you know, we're going to make great wine, great wine, great wine. But the one thing that nobody, so far as I know, uh, can buy is time. You cannot accelerate the arrival of the future. And it is that refinement, that's Burgundy's advantage today. Um, it is just centuries upon centuries of eliminating that which didn't work. I heard a, a, a very, very interesting definition of, of tradition. 
um, because tradition is near and dear to the Burgundians. But I, I was really struck by this simple phrase, but the insight buried therein is that tradition was simply at one time innovation that worked. All innovation doesn't necessarily work. And so again, it's this process of refinement, what the Burgundians do, they tried new things. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. That which did work was retained. And already today, you, know, you go to talk to new world winemakers, they will tell you, we used to do this, now we do that. That is an example. Uh, and there will be more and more and more of those. And so we will narrow in a way uh, the, the things that work. But work where? What works in Oregon isn't necessarily what works in, in Mayacamas. It isn't necessarily what works in Santa Barbara because the growing conditions are different, how close you are to the sea. In other words, all of the microclimactic um, things that we take for granted in Burgundy as being important, uh, we're still measuring them here. You know, how much sunshine, how do I farm? Because how they farm in Burgundy um, resembles how you farm in the U.S., but it would be a, an almost implausible coincidence that we would farm in exactly the same way that they farm there. Speaking about exploring terroir, you wrote a book called The Pearl of the Coat, where you went in-depth, 350 pages on uh, Vone. How did that get started, and how did that take shape, and what inspired you to write that? That is a good question. Thank you. It's uh, uh, also... It's nice to be able to talk about something that was really a labor of love. It started when two very, very dear friends of mine, uh, Michael Rockefeller and Douglas Barzillet, who live here in New York, uh, came up with the idea, what if we tried to do the most comprehensive tasting has ever been staged for Romani Conti itself, a wine from the Domaine del Romani Conti. And... There was a five-year process to collect um, 74 different vintages going back to the very first one that was produced under uh, the man who would become the founder of the Domaine de Romney Conti, a fellow by the name of Duvo Blochet. So the, I was thinking, you know, there must be a way to chronicle this tasting in a way uh, that would be interesting for people to read about. And the longer I thought about it, the longer or the, the more I began to realize that maybe that that could serve as the kernel um, to build a more comprehensive story around. And I had, before I started Berghound, actually the, the year before Berghound proper was founded, I was doing research for a book on Burgundy. And then that's when I finally decided, well, a book would be interesting, but two, three, four years, a book would be finished, and then what? And that's when the idea, well, maybe the newsletter would be interesting because that would be continuing, if not in perpetuity, at least you might reasonably have a 20-year uh, run with, with that. And I reasoned that within that period, perhaps there would be time to produce um, some side projects like Pearl of the Coat. And so that's when all of those ideas coalesced into why don't we try to do something that A, was interesting, and B, in a sense, had never been done. Um, there's nothing, and I don't mean this in a self-laudatory uh, way, but there's nothing like Pearl 
out there because while there have been some wonderful, wonderful books on Burgundy, um, relatively few of them have tried to go really, really deep. Uh, and I didn't want to do, in other words, I didn't want a Me Too book um, that basically said, you know, here's what everybody else has said. And again, this is not a knock on any of those authors. I don't mean it that way. I, I have lots of books on Burgundy and all of mine are really well thumbed. I have read them all with, uh, with a great deal of interest. Some are better than others, but the, the idea was a bit like Burghound. You know, was there a way to take the current state of the art and push the boundaries of that? And I honestly didn't know whether there was the appetite for 350 pages on one thing. Um, but I reasoned, well, Berghound work, perhaps this idea would work too. And I have to say that I have been more than gratified by the results. Um, we are already well into a second printing. Um, we've sold books. I mean, Berghound's distributed in 64 countries and basically Pearl the Coat's been shipped. Uh, FedEx loves us uh, because they're always sending stuff off to exotic locations. But that was really the, you know, the, the genesis of the idea was a magnificent tasting. It's the most interesting tasting that I've ever attended. I mean, just the sheer breadth of it. Uh, and going back into the 19th century, and also Romani Conti itself as a vineyard is interesting for lots of reasons. But one of the historical attributes that is interesting is that until 1945, it was the second to last, as I'm speaking in Burgundy, there are still prephylaxia vines elsewhere, but it was the second to last vineyard to be ripped up. But until 1945, it was still producing wine from prephylaxia vines. Um, they had been preserved um, with a great deal of difficulty, but um, they were preserved. And really, it was only the privations of World War II where they couldn't get the chemicals anymore that those vines became so enfeebled um, because phylloxera still exists today. Uh, just, the vines are planted on, on uh, phylloxera-resistant rootstock. They're not immune, but they're resistant. So uh, in any event, the, the vines in 1945 gave, uh, this is almost two hectares of vines, 1.8, that gave 608 bottles. And at that point, the domain said, this is no longer... A, a yield level that we can support economically. And so it really was the end of an era, um, a way of farming, because it's most people don't realize, they just assume that the neat garden-like rows of vines that are seen everywhere in the world today are the way that it always was. And that's not true because through the arrival of phylloxera in Burgundy in the 1880s, uh, they used a vine layering system. And just to give you some perspective about the plantation densities and the way that things were done, is that a hectare is equal to 100 Rs, um, for those of you that may know your metric conversions. And there are um, 100 what's called centiars um, in each R. And a hectare has 10,000 centiars, and a centiar is, is, is one square meter. So the plantation density in Burgundy is 10,000 vines per hectare, which literally is meter by meter planting. And so if you can um, visualize that, uh, that density. Well, 
in the days of the vine layering system, uh, you started out perhaps with 10,000, but then every 20 years or so, that vine was, a vine was sacrificed where its trunk was laid down in a trench that was buried and then covered up. And then that would propagate shoots. Um, and 20 years later, one of those shoots would be layered down. Well, you have to do this in ways where you can dig a six foot long trench. And so after a while, there are only so many avenues that you can use directions. And so, uh, it became literally willy nilly and you had vine densities that are reported to have been between 25 and 30,000, two and a half to three times denser than what we see today. And a lot of people, because you see old photographs with horses, assumed that the horse was the tractor of the day. That's not true because a horse, any animal, even people had difficulty walking in vineyards where it was, um, in a sense, uh, complete chaos, vine trunks going everywhere. So you had to be very careful walking and certainly a horse couldn't do it. And so it was only when uh, the advent of phylloxera and uh, the vine grafting system, because the United States was the source of the problem, but it was also the source of the cure, you had French vines grafted on American rootstock. And there, because um, you could no longer use the vine layering system because you have to graft onto something. And so as soon as you lay down the trunk of something that isn't resistant, phylloxera is all over it. So you necessarily had to have the rise of a nurseryman class that could do these graftings. Although a lot of people did their own graftings, they learned how, and there you could plant in coherent rows. And so at that point, the horse became the tractor. Um, you could hook up a plow, you could have certain um, treatment containers. And so it was the advent, literally the dawn of automation uh, in the vineyards, but that didn't really occur. I mean, the first officially mandated, uh, plantation of grafted vines was 1890 and the first harvest from them back to the same date. Coincidentally, we talked about where the bond of Vendange was declared that 110 years ago was 1893. So it was really right around 1900 when enough people had say, said to themselves, you know, that system seems to be working. It's easier to be in the vines. So it was right around 1900 when much of Burgundy began to be replanted on grafted vines in these garden-like rows that exist today. Prior to that, wasn't the case. And how have the Burgundians themselves, the growers, responded to you as a newsletter writer and a, a book publisher? You self-published Pearl of the Coat. Uh, what has the reception been like over the years that you've been doing it now? That's a good question too. I would say that pretty much like with any critic, you know, whatever nationality that comes until the grower gets a sense as to not only your taste, but how you write. Um, there are critics, I, I think unfortunately, but um, that's a personal view, uh, that attack. The idea is to say that such and such is lazy or incompetent or completely missed this vintage. 
Now, one of the things that I do in Berghound uh, that I assiduously try to do is that my critiques, when they are severe, are never, never, never personal. Um, it, it's not important. It's not up to me to judge why somebody's wines aren't up to standard. Um, it could be that they fell ill. could be that they had hail. Usually if it's hail, they'll, they'll tell me that you know, we did the best we could, but we understand that the wines aren't great this year. And Mother Nature doesn't always cooperate. Sometimes um, I know where people have fallen ill or a child has fallen ill uh, and their attention is not in the vineyards anymore. You know, it's probably where it should be. And so there are human reasons why people can miss. And so the idea that you as a journalist can go in and after the fact attribute um, why somebody's wines aren't what they probably should have been, uh, that's almost irrelevant. The idea is to judge what's in the glass. Um, you can say that, you know, I, I don't respect this domain. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I do think that until the other side, in other words, you have the judge and those being judged. Well, if those being judged feel as though they are being judged fairly, um, the, the French are actually pretty good about accepting critique. You know, they don't have that reputation, but I have found that if they believe that you have come with the intent to understand, that you ask questions, um, that you allow them to tell their side of the story, that they're willing to accept your judgment. They may not agree with it, but the French are pretty good to say that um, the word they employ is that if uh, you are serious, which the rough translation in English we would have would be professional, then they're willing to accept it. Um, if they think that it's biting, you might or might not be invited back. And sometimes uh, after 13 years, if you're doing your job, not everybody's going to like you. Uh, but most people still want me to come. I have a few that have said, please don't come back. It's clear you don't like our wines and uh, I'd rather not have negative critiques out there, which is fair enough uh, because it's absolutely of no interest to me to go taste wines that I know that I'm probably not going to care for, even though I make every effort to go with an open mind. I mean, fair is fair. Um, but the second thing is that there is no interest in writing up wines that I do not find interesting. It's no fun to write them at, I cannot believe that it's especially interesting for my readers. And while I have heard uh, again and again and again and again, that I want to know that which to avoid uh, just as well as that which is excellent, um, the implied between the lines message is that with as many growers as I visit, if they're not in there, there's a reason. Because you had a policy uh, that may still exist about whatever you tasted you reviewed. Absolutely. No exceptions. And because I didn't want um, people to write me and say, did you just not comment? Um, this, you know, you're, you're in the middle of the interest of the grower and the interest of your reader base. But, you know, we don't take any advertising and there are no subsidies of any kind. Therefore, I work for the readers. I intend to be fair to the growers. Again, it's, they need to believe that you're not going in there um, to desecrate uh, what they have done. You know, in other words, to go in and criticize so harshly. Um, if I didn't stand in the middle, um, I might go in and say, you know, this sucks. Uh, 
But I think uh, a more respectful way to go about it is to say, um, this is not what I'm used to seeing from this domain. It's a very different way to express what is essentially the same thing. You know, people that play in the Burgundy game are generally pretty well educated, pretty well traveled. And you got to have, I mean, let's be honest, you got to have at least a, a bit of scratch to, to play the game. And you don't have to come out and just say, you know, this is just god awful. Um, you know, you can describe what's there. Uh, the reader has no trouble discerning. That's not very good. And I think that's the, the best way. It doesn't mean that another journalistic approach, you know, there are people who enjoy somebody being taken to the outhouse and beaten. I'm not one of them. I really think that it's just easier to, to say, you know, I did not find the wines to be especially interesting or I didn't find the wines to be as interesting as I usually do. And if that happens two or three years in a row and there isn't like a really good reason, you know, death in the family, whatever it might be, uh, just they're not there anymore because just like a grower sorts his fruit, I sort the universe of people that I visit. And if somebody's not there, absent it being a scheduling difficulty, somebody fell ill at the last moment, or you know, it doesn't thankfully happen to me very often, knock on wood, but once in a while, I've had to cancel visits because I have a cold or whatever. And if you can't work properly, it's not fair to the grower. It's not fair to the readers. It's not fair to me either. And so if you're sick, you're sick. And so I, but absent things that you can't control like that, if I visit two years in a row with somebody where I think the quality has really fallen off, what's the point? I just don't go back. Alan Meadows, he's asking questions and he's sorting the universe of wine for Burgown.com. Thank you very much for being here today. It was wonderful. Thank you for the questions. Not often that I get questions that are provocative and as interesting. And I hope uh, your listeners find them equally interesting. Thank you, sir. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.